Section 16 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 2. Hey, Isbel, came in loud, hoarse voice. Let your women fight for you? Gaston Isbel sat up with a start, and his face turned livid. Jean needed no more to prove that the derisive voice from outside had belonged to Jorth. The old rancher lunged up to his full height, and with reckless disregard of life, he rushed to the window. Jorth, he roared, I dare you to meet me, man to man. This elicited no answer. Jean dragged his father away from the window. After that, a waiting silence ensued, gradually less fraught with suspense. Blaisdell started conversation by saying he believed the fight was over for that particular time. No one disputed him. Evidently, Gaston Isbel was loath to believe it. Jean, however, watching at the back of the kitchen, eventually discovered that the Jorth gang had lifted the siege. Jean saw them congregate at the edge of the brush, somewhat lower down than they had been the day before. A team of mules drawn a wagon appeared on the road and turned toward the slope. Saddled horses were led down out of the junipers. Jean saw bodies, evidently of dead men, lifted into the wagon to be hauled away toward the village. Seven mounted men, leading four riderless horses, rode out into the valley and followed the wagon. Dad, they're gone, declared Jean. We had the best of this fight. If only Guy and Jacobs had listened. The old man nodded moodily. He had aged considerably during these two trying days. His hair was grayer. Now that the blaze and glow of the fight had passed, he showed a subtle change, a fixed and morbid sadness, a resignation to a fate he had accepted. The ordinary routine of ranch life did not return for the Isbels. Blaisdell returned home to settle matters there so that he could devote all his time to this feud. Gaston Isbel sat down to wait for the members of his clan. The male members of the family kept guard and turn over the ranch that night. Another day dawned. It brought word from Blaisdell that Blue, Fredericks, Gordon, and Colmer were all at his house on the way to join the Isbels. This news appeared greatly to rejuvenate Gaston Isbel but his enthusiasm did not last long. Impatient and moody by turns, he paced or moped around the cabin, always looking out, sometimes toward Blaisdell's ranch, but mostly toward Grass Valley. It struck Jean as singular that neither Esther Isbel nor Mrs. Jacobs suggested a reburial of their husbands. The two bereaved women did not ask for assistance, but repaired to the pasture and there spent several hours working over the graves. They raised mounds, which they sodded, and then placed stones at the heads and feet. Lastly, they fenced in the graves. "'I reckon I'll hitch up and drive back home,' said Mrs. Jacobs, when she returned to the cabin. "'I've much to do in plan. Probably I'll go to my mother's home. She's old and will be glad to have me.' If I had any place to go, I'd sure go, declared Esther Isbel bitterly. Gaston Isbel heard this remark. 
He raised his face from his hands, evidently both nettled and hurt. Esther, sure that's not kind, he said. The red-haired woman, for she did not appear to be a girl any more, halted before his chair and gazed down at him with a terrible flare of scorn in her gray eyes. Gaston Isbel, all I got to say to you is this, she retorted, with the voice of a man. Seeing that you and Lee Jorth hate each other, why couldn't you act like men? You damned Texans with your bloody feuds, dragging in every relation, every friend to murder each other. That's not the way of Arizona men. We've all got to suffer, and we women be ruined for life. Because you had differences with Jorth. If you were half a man, you'd go out and kill him yourself, and not leave a lot of widows and orphaned children. Jean himself writhed under the lash of her scorn. Gaston Isbel turned a dead white. He could not answer her. He seemed stricken with merciless truth. Slowly dropping his head, he remained motionless, a pathetic and tragic figure, and he did not stir until the rapid beat of hoofs denoted the approach of horsemen. Blaisdell appeared on his white charger, leading a pack animal, and behind him rode a group of men, all heavily armed, and likewise with packs. "'Get down and come in,' was Isbel's greeting. "'Bill, you look after their packs. Better leave the horses saddled.' The booted and spurred riders trooped in, and their demeanor fitted their errand. Jean was acquainted with all of them. Fredericks was a lanky Texan, the color of dust, and he had yellow, clear eyes like those of a hawk. His mother had been an Isbel. Gordon, too, was related to Jean's family, though distantly. He resembled an industrious miner more than a prosperous cattleman. Blue was the most striking of the visitors, as he was the most noted. A little, shrunken, gray-eyed man, with years of cowboy written all over him. But he looked the quiet, easy, cool, and deadly Texan he was reputed to be. Blue's Texas record was shady and was seldom alluded to, as unfavorable comment had turned out to be hazardous. He was the only one of the group who did not carry a rifle, but he packed two guns, a habit not often noted in Texans and almost never in Arizonians. Colmer, Anne Isabel's fiancé, was the youngest member of the clan, and the one closest to Jean. His meeting with Anne affected Jean powerfully, and brought to a climax an idea that had been developing in Jean's mind. His sister devotedly loved this lean-faced, keen-eyed Arizonian, and it took no great insight to discover that Calmer reciprocated her affection. They were young. They had long life before them. It seemed to Jean a pity that Calmer should be drawn into this war. Jean watched them as they conversed apart, and he saw Anne's hands creep up to Colmer's breast, and he saw her dark eyes, eloquent, hungry, fierceful, lifted with queries her lips did not speak. Jean stepped beside them, and laid an arm over both their shoulders. Colmer, for Anne's sake, you'd better back out of this Jorth Isbel fight, he whispered. Colmer looked insulted. But Jean, it's Anne's father, he said. I'm almost one of the family. You're Anne's sweetheart, and by heaven, 
"'I say you oughtn't to go with us,' whispered John. "'Go with you?' faltered Anne. "'Yes. Dad's going straight after Jorth. Can't you tell that? And there'll be one hell of a fight.' Anne looked up into Comer's face with all her soul in her eyes, but she did not speak. Her look was noble. She yearned to guide him right, yet her lips were sealed. And Comer betrayed the trouble of his soul. The code of men held him bound, and he could not break from it, though he divined in that moment how truly it was wrong. "'Jean, your dad started me in the cattle business,' said Colmer, earnestly, "'and I'm doing well now. And when I asked him for Anne, he said he'd be glad to have me in the family. Well, when this talk of fight come up, I asked your dad to let me go in on his side. He wouldn't hear of it. But after a while, as the time passed, and he made more enemies, he finally consented.' I reckon he needs me now, and I can't back out, not even for Anne. I would if I were you, replied Jean, and he knew that he lied. Jean, I'm gambling to come out of the fight, said Calmer with a smile. He had no morbid fears nor presentiments such as troubled Jean. Why, sure, you stand as good a chance as anyone, rejoined Jean. It wasn't that I was worrying about so much. "'What was it, then?' asked Anne steadily. "'If Andrew does come through alive, he'll have blood on his hands,' returned Jean with passion. "'He can't come through without it. "'I've begun to feel what it means to have killed my fellow men, "'and I'd rather your husband and the father of your children never felt that.' Colmer did not take Jean as subtly as Anne did. She shrunk a little. Her dark eyes dilated. But Comer showed nothing of her spiritual reaction. He was young. He had wild blood. He was loyal to the Isbels. Jean, never worry about my conscience, he said with a keen look. Nothing would tickle me any more than to get a shot at every damned one of the Jorths. That established Comer's status in regard to the Jorth-Isbel feud. Jean had no more to say. He respected Anne's friend and felt poignant sorrow for Anne. Gaston Isbel called for meat and drink to be set on the table for his guests. When his wishes had been complied with, the women took the children into the adjoining cabin and shut the door. Ah, well, we can eat and talk now. First the newcomers wanted to hear particulars of what had happened. Blaisdell had told all he knew and had seen but that was not sufficient. They plied Gaston Isbel with questions. Laboriously and ponderously, he rehearsed the experiences of the fight at the ranch, according to his impressions. Bill Isbel was exhorted to talk, but he had of late manifested a sullen and taciturn disposition. In spite of Jean's vigilance, Bill had continued to imbibe red liquor. Then Jean was called upon to relate all he had seen and done. It had been Jean's intention to keep his mouth shut, first for his own sake, and secondly, because he did not like to talk of his deeds. But when thus appealed to by these somber-faced, intent-eyed men, he divined that the more carefully he described the cruelty and baseness of their enemies, 
and the more vividly he presented his participation in the first fight of the feud, the more strongly he would bind these friends to the Isbel cause. So he talked for an hour, beginning with his meeting with Coulter up on the rim, and ending with an account of his killing Greaves. His listeners sat through this long narrative with unabated interest, and at the close they were leaning forward, breathless and tense. "'Ah, so Greaves got his deserts at last!' exclaimed Gordon. All the men around the table made comments, and the last from Blue was the one that struck Jean forcibly. "'Sure, that was a strange and a hell of a way to kill Greaves. Why'd you do that, Jean?' "'I told you. I wanted to avoid noise, and I hoped to get more of them.' Blue nodded his lean, eagle-like head and sat thoughtfully, as if not convinced of anything, save Jean's prowess. After a moment, Blue spoke again. Then going back to Jean's telling about rustled cattle, I've got this to say. I've long suspected that someone living right here in the valley has been driving off cattle and dealing with rustlers, and now I'm sure of it. The speech did not elicit the amaze of Gaston Isbel that Jean expected it would. You mean Greaves or some of his friends? No, they wasn't none of them in the cattle business like we are. Sure, we all knowed Greaves was crooked, but what I'm figuring is that some so-called honest man in our settlement has been making crooked deals. Blue was a man of deeds rather than words, and so much strong speech from him, whom everyone knew to be remarkably reliable and keen, made a profound impression upon most of the Isbel faction. But to Jean's surprise, his father did not rave. It was Blaisdell who supplied the rage and invective. Bill Isbel, also, was strangely indifferent to this new element in the condition of cattle dealing. Suddenly Jean caught a vague flash of thought, as if he had intercepted the thought of another's mind, and he wondered, could his brother Bill know anything about this crooked work alluded to by Blue? Dismissing the conjecture, Jean listened earnestly. And if it's true, it sure makes this difference. We can't blame all the rustling on to Jorth, concluded Blue. Well, it's not true, declared Gaston Isbel roughly. Jorth and his hash-knife gang are at the bottom of all the rustling in the valley for years back and they've got to be wiped out. Isbel, I reckon we'd all feel better if we talk straight, replied Blue coolly. I'm here to stand by the Isbels, and you know what that means. But I'm not here to fight Jorth because he may be a rustler. The others may have their own reasons, but mine is this. You once stood by me in Texas when I was needing friends. Well, I'm standing by you now. Jorth is your enemy, and so he is mine. Gaston Isbel bowed to this ultimatum, scarcely less agitated than when Esther Isbel had denounced him. His rabid and morbid hate of Jorth had eaten into his heart to take possession there, like the parasite that battened upon the life of its victim. Blue's steely voice, his cold gray eyes, showed the unbiased truth of the man as well as his fidelity to his creed. Here again, but in a different manner, Gaston Isbel had the fact flung at him 
that other men must suffer, perhaps die, for his hate. And the very soul of the old rancher apparently rose in passionate revolt against the blind, headlong, elemental strength of his nature. So it seemed to Jean, who, in love and pity, that hourly grew, saw through his father. Was it too late? Alas, Gaston Isbel could never be turned back. Yet something was altering his brooding, fixed mind. Well, said Blaisdell gruffly, let's get down to business. I'm for having Blue to be foreman of this here outfit, and all of us to do as he says. Gaston Isbel opposed this selection and indeed resented it. He intended to lead the Isbel faction. All right, then. Give us a hunch what we're going to do, replied Blaisdell. We're going to ride off on Jorth's trail, and one way or another, kill him. Kill him. I reckon that'll end the fight. What did old Isbel have in his mind? His listeners shook their head. No, asserted Blaisdell. Killing Jorth might be the end of your desires, Isbel, but it'd never end our fight. We have gone too far. If we take Jorth's trail from here, it means we have to wipe out that rustler gang, or stay to the last man. Yes, by God, exclaimed Fredericks. Let's drink to that, said Blue. Strangely, they turned to this Texas gunman, instinctively recognizing him, the brain and heart and the past deeds that fitted him for the leadership of such a clan. Blue had all in his life to lose and nothing to gain. Yet his spirit was such that he could not lean to all the possible gain of the future and leave a debt unpaid. Then his voice, his look, his influence were those of a fighter. They all drank with him, even Jean, who hated liquor. And this act of drinking seemed the climax of the council. Preparations were at once begun for their departure on Jorth's trail. Jean took but little time for his own needs, a horse, a blanket, a knapsack of meat and bread, a canteen and his weapons, with all the ammunition he could pack, made up his outfit. He wore his buckskin suit, leggings and moccasins. Very soon, the cavalcade was ready to depart. Jean tried not to watch Bill Isabel say goodbye to his children, but it was impossible not to. Whatever Bill was, as a man, he was father of those children, and he loved them. How strange that the little ones seemed to realize the meaning of this goodbye. They were grave, somber-eyed, pale up to the last moment. Then they broke down and wept. Did they sense that their father would never come back? Jean caught that dark, fatalistic presentiment. Bill Isbel's convulsed face showed that he also caught it. Jean did not see Bill say goodbye to his wife, but he heard her. Old Gaston Isabel forgot to speak to the children, or else could not. He never looked at them, and his goodbye to Anne was as if he were only riding to the village for a day. Jean saw a woman's love, woman's intuition, woman's grief in her eyes. He could not escape her. "'Oh, Jean, oh, brother,' she whispered, as she enfolded him. "'It's awful, it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Goodbye. If killing must be, see that you kill the Jorths. Goodbye.' Even in Anne, gentle and mild, the Isbel blood spoke at the last. 
Jean gave Anne over to the pale-faced calmer, who took her in his arms. Then Jean fled out to his horse. This cold-blooded devastation of a home was almost more than he could bear. There was love here. What would be left? Colmer was the last one to come out to the horses. He did not walk erect, nor as one whose sight was clear. Then, as the silent, tense, grim men mounted their horses, Bill Isbel's oldest child, the boy, appeared in the door. His little form seemed instinct with a force vastly different from grief. His face was the face of an Isbel. "'Daddy, kill em all!' he shouted, with a passion all the fiercer for its incongruity to the treble voice. So the poison had spread from father to son. End of chapter 8, part 2